I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 36. In 2005, Pixar released a computer animated film entitled Inside Out. I'm not sure if you saw that, but it is a story of an 11-year-old girl who moves from Minnesota to uh, San Francisco as her dad takes a new job. And most of the movie takes place in the head of Riley, this hockey-loving girl, where there are five anthropomorphic, color-coded characters representing different types of emotion. There is joy and sadness and anger and fear and disgust And these characters deal inside of her brain, and they help Riley navigate her world. This comical look at what goes on in the mind, or as the movie calls it, headquarters, drives home how Riley looks at the world, how she makes decisions of her new life, and what is behind the action that she pursues. While this cartoon is far from the place we should get our doctrine of the psychology of humanity, it does reflect truth similar to what the Bible teaches about our actions and how we come about doing what we do. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The King James Version describes it this way. Watch over your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. Solomon is saying that we must guard our hearts because it is the heart that produces the action. We must protect and watch over our hearts because of its influence and impact on how we respond to things, how we act day in and day out, the attitudes that we have, the speech that we communicate. The heart is the fountain of the spring, and that spring flows our words and our attitudes and our actions. What we do and what we say and our attitudes are products of the heart. It starts inside and moves out. Jesus said the same thing in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. Jesus was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries and deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus in this text is in a discussion about what defiles the man. Is it the food that we eat? What defiles a man? And in this discussion, Jesus explained that the defilement comes from the evil that is done, but in so doing, he described for us the origin of those evil things. Where do evil thoughts come from? Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. comes from the heart. comes from the heart. The cause or origin of our actions is in the heart. The inside moves out. But what is the heart? What does the Bible understand? What does it teach us about the heart? And obviously it's not speaking about that 10-ounce muscle that pumps blood throughout the body. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it is referring to the inner you. Specifically, it's speaking of the mind and the affections and the will. 
The mind includes your thoughts, your beliefs, your understandings, your judgments, your conscience. The, the, the scriptures speak of it this way. In Matthew 13, 15, it says, and understand with your heart. Mark chapter 2, verse 6 says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Culturally, we don't view our heart as that part of us that thinks, but biblically, the mind is one of the three areas of the operation of the heart. It's that headquarters where we think and we make judgments. The affections include our longings, our desires, our feelings, our emotions. It's more like how we would think of the heart in our culture. The scriptures speak of it in these ways. In Psalm 20, verse 4, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47, Serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart. In Ecclesiastes, it speaks in chapter 11, verse 9, Follow the impulses or desires of your heart. So we've got the mind, we've got the affections, and this heart also includes that aspect of the will. The will is that part of the inner person that chooses or determines what actions to take. It takes into account the mind and the heart and moves you to a point of action. It is then and only then that we act. One author put it this way, Your mind informs your affections of the source of your highest happiness. Your affections imagine it, causing you to long for it and, that it, uh, and that is what provides the impetus needed to awaken your will to choose what you will say or do or the attitude you will have. So the heart then is that part of you that is your control center that produces your actions. As you think about moving in a particular way, as you want your life to be characterized by certain actions, or as you're trying to figure out those habits in your life that you are sick of and they drive you insane because you continue to do the very thing you don't want to do, the place to start is not the outside. It is to start inwardly first. So Inside Out's depiction of young Riley's headquarters is not too far off. Again, it is a weird movie. It gets into these weird things. So again, I don't recommend it as a, you know, a deep study of humanity. But the point that the heart is what motivates behavior. At any given moment, we are acting upon our desires, our affections of the heart. And we must guard our heart. We must work on our heart if we are going to live a life that honors the Lord. We are going to pursue the things of godliness and we are going to reject the things that are wicked. As we look at the passage before us this morning, we see David granting us the insight into the mind or heart or headquarters of two contrasting groups. We see in verses 1 through 4 the ungodly, what they are thinking, what's going on in their heart, which then leads them to sinful action. And then we see in verses 5 through 12, the upright in heart, the righteous, those that follow the Lord. What is going on in their hearts? What are they thinking and meditating on that leads them to righteousness? Verses 1 through 4 speak of those that are speaking, thinking, and acting sinfully. What motivates that? 
And verses 5 through 12, those that are living a godly lifestyle, what are they thinking? What are they, what are they, uh, what is going on inside of their hearts? And in seeing the heart of these two groups, we are privileged to see what drives the actions of both. What, what causes them to respond the way that they do? I believe that David here is contrasting the ungodly, the rebellious, those that do not believe in God with the godly. But this psalm is applicable to the believer in not only recognizing what is going on in the mind of our unbelieving neighbors as we seek to love them and pray for them and uh, evangelize them, but what is going on in our own mind, our own heart, at any given moment when we choose to sin, when we choose to be satisfied in anything other than God. And so it reveals to us what's going on in our headquarters, what's going on in the heart of the sinner, what's going on in the heart of the man that's pursuing the Lord. As we look at the psalm this morning, I want us to look inside the minds of these two different types of people so that we can get a better understanding of the motivations and the meditations of the heart that produce bad fruit or good fruit, so that we can reject those things that produce bad fruit, and we can cling to the things that produce good fruit. We want to see what leads to sinful action and what leads to righteous action so that when we are struggling with sin in our lives, we address it at its root, at the source, so that we can watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So let's read this text together. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed and he sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this pulling back the curtain Thank you for allowing us to see what goes on in the thought process, in the heart 
of two different types of people. What goes on in the heart of the individual who chooses to sin, who speaks with evil, who, who acts in evil, who plans to do evil. What motivates them? What causes them to act in that way? And Lord, thank you for revealing, pulling the curtain back on the heart and the mind of the individual who seeks you for their refuge, who runs to you, who worships you, who lives their life in dependence. I pray, Lord, as we see these things, that we would identify them in our own lives and we would reject it. We would reject the sin of thought and attitude and we would cling to the righteousness that is demonstrated in the second part of the song so that, Lord, we would walk in a way that produces a living and holy sacrifice. For you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Since our outline is pretty simple this morning, I decided not to put it on the app nor on the overhead behind me. Our outline today is pretty simple. There's two parts. David provides us insight into the inside of the ungodly in verses 1 through 4. And he provides us insight into the inside of the heart of the godly in verses 5 through 12. David begins this psalm by revealing the inner workings of the rebellious. What goes on in the mind of the sinner, both that person who has rejected God completely and those of us that daily reject God when we sin. In the first four verses of Psalm 36, David begins this psalm revealing to us the progression of sin in the life of the rebellious. David is getting here to the heart of the matter. David is allowing us inside the headquarters of the, or the heart of the unbeliever and, how, and to see, for us to see how they think, which leads them to speaking and planning and doing evil. If you're reading from the NIV, you will notice that I read a different translation from the one before you. The New American Standard translates this verse, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. While the NIV says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. While I prefer the NASB most of the time, I think the NIV is seeking a more literal translation of the Hebrew here. For the word message is the same word translated elsewhere as oracle. It is found in many different places as an oracle of the Lord or thus saith the Lord. But here, God is not the one speaking, but sin is speaking. And that is why the NASB says that transgression speaks. Regardless of the translation, I think we can understand that David here is personifying transgression and allowing us to hear from it, to see how it works, to see its strategy, to see its progression, ultimately, so that we can cut it off at the source. So that the second half of this psalm is more of a characteristic, is more of a, a description of our lives than the first half. Transgression, the one speaking, is the word used of an overt act of rebellion, an aggressive act of insurrection against God. It is when we do what God tells us 
not to do or we refuse to do what God commands. And there is a sense of rebellion, a sense of a clenched fist and saying, God, you say you're in charge, but I am in charge. And this rebellious spirit is speaking and telling us two things about what goes on in the heart that leads to ungodliness. Again, the ungodliness of our world and the ungodliness in our own lives. And it says two things. Number one, God is not feared. God is not taken seriously. And number two, that self is exalted. That it is taken too seriously. In verse 2, David says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Transgression says that the wicked rebel against God because of a lack of fear of him. The word fear in verse 2 is the word dread. And this word goes beyond simple awe and respect, which it does imply and include, but it goes further. And it speaks to the terror one has, thinking about offending that awe-inspiring God, about disrespecting our Creator or rebelling against His righteousness. There is either an ignorance of truth because we don't know what the Bible has to say or an apathy of the truth that is known about him that we don't act upon what we know. Sin is caused when we don't take God seriously, when we don't fear his judgment, when we don't fear his response to sin. The wicked sin, they rebel against God Because they feel no uneasiness about walking contrary to the word. Their belief is that A, God doesn't exist. Or God is unaware of the sinful activities that we engage in. Or simply God doesn't really care about our defiance. God will not do anything. Or this particular sin is not judgment worthy. So sin is pursued because there are no repercussions. You and I sin because we don't believe God will do something. The the, the world sins because they don't fear the Lord. They can't see Him. He's not tangible. They can't hear from Him. And so they do whatever they do because they have no fear of God judgment. So sin is pursued because there will be no repercussions. Spurgeon, as he speaks on this passage, takes it to its natural conclusion when he said, when a man has no fear of God, he is prepared for any crime. He's prepared for any crime because there is no crime that will be punished. Nothing is off the table. How do we get to where we are? The vileness of sin in our culture. How did we get there? Well, it started very slowly with a fearlessness in regards to God. And there's a sin. God didn't do anything. So I sin again. But this time it's a little bit bigger. God didn't do anything. And the next thing you know, you are in egregious and vile sin. Paul quotes this verse in Romans 3.18 at the beginning of his indictment of the sin of the human race as the culminating symptom of sin. If you want to know what a symptom of sin is, is that you just don't fear the Lord. Sin occurs 
When we ignore God's righteousness, we'll look at that word in a few minutes, meaning standard, and we ignore God's justice. When we create a God in our own minds that is some sort of grandfatherly, benevolent person that is only categorized by love and grace and mercy, when we forget His holiness, when we forget His righteousness, when we forget His justice, while we may not overtly say there is no hell, sin is produced in our life when we live life as if there is not one. We remove him from our mind and we don't take him seriously. That's how, it, that's how we get to sin because we don't believe that God will do anything. We remove him from our mind and we don't take him seriously. We, in essence, become the fool that is spoken of in Psalm 14 when it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is no God to establish a standard and therefore there is no God that will punish based upon the breaking of that standard. While we may believe in a God, we act as a practical atheist, not recognizing him in the midst of our daily lives. David continues in verse 2 by pointing out that having displaced God, the wicked become the center of their own life. Spurgeon makes the connection between the two points when he says, he who makes little of God makes much of himself. Look at verse 2. For it flatters him in his own eyes. Transgression is speaking lies to the mind, lifting or exalting self above others and above God. You are the standard. You are the one that determines right or wrong. Flatter, uh, rebellion flatters. It heaps ex excessive praise on self, making us look to ourselves as the center, the most important, the one that should be obeyed. In the void of God on the throne, the wicked place another God on the throne, and that is the God of self. And we can easily see the worship of that God by looking at what we do to please self, to protect self, to exalt self. Because transgression speaks to our hearts that God is not one to be feared, not one to be worshipped, not one to be obeyed, and because we are flattered into thinking that we are the most important, then we don't see sin properly. Verse 2, For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Look, we're not even going to know what sin is if we don't look to the righteousness and standards of God. And we're not going to hate it because sin is what, is what worships self, is what pleases self, is what protects self. One commentary described it as delusional, that we are blind to it and have a lack of hatred for it. And this is why sin is celebrated in our culture and why righteousness is ridiculed. Why wrong is called right and right is called wrong. Now with that being the reality of the heart, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 4 share the natural progression of that wrong thinking. 
If we believe that God is not important and that God will not judge sin and that we are worthy of praise, then verses 3 and 4 will naturally occur. The words of our mouth are going to be wicked and full of deceit. We will cease to be wise and we will cease to do good. We will make plans. We will will plan wickedness upon our bed. We will set ourselves on a path that is not good. We will not despise evil. David points us to the heart of the problem, why we sin, why we transgress. And he confronts the heart in what we believe. When dealing with sinful speech and sinful actions and sinful attitudes, we must go beyond the fruit of the sin. Verses 3 and 4 is the fruit of the sin. But the fruit of the sin comes from the root of the sin, and that is our belief in who God is and who we are. We must get to the root And that root is our belief in God, our belief that he is worthy of our praise, that he is holy and righteous, and that he will judge sin. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to cease from sinning, if we're going to do good, passages like the two I'm going to mention must play a significant role in our life. We must reflect on his omniscience, his omnipresence, that he is all around and knows all about our lives. Psalm 139, verse 1, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going going out and lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. A recognition of God's knowledge, intimate knowledge of each one of us. And then a passage like Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 through 6. The Lord knows us, is intimately acquainted with our ways and sees the sin that is covered, sees the sinful attitudes, sees the lust and the envy, sees the things that others cannot see. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and he dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. 
Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. This is the God we worship. And as Christians, every time we think of the perfection and the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus, we are reminded that this characteristic of God is what hung him to the cross. This is why he poured out his wrath on Christ, because he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. So if, we're, so if that is what is going on in the mind and the heart of the wicked and in the mind and the hearts of us when we sin, what needs to be central in our hearts, what is to keep us on the narrow road, living a life of righteousness, It's a recognition of who God is, his characteristics, his justice, his holiness. David spends the last portion of this psalm giving insight into the inner workings of the heart of the righteous. And he looks inside of the godly. The transition from verse 4 and the wicked and verse 5 and the godly is quite sudden. David revealed that the righteous delighted in meditating on God and his attributes rather than disregarding them. Instead of pushing God out of their worldview and exalting themselves, David draws back the curtain, allows us to see what the godly think, what the godly uh, meditate on, and what is seen is that God is at the center of their life. As you look at verses 5 and 6, notice the four attributes of God that David mentions. They, they, they seem to be coupled together in two pairs. He begins in verse 5, focusing on God's loving kindness and his faithfulness. And then in verse 6, he, he couples together his righteousness and his judgments. Loving kindness is the translation of the Hebrew word hesed. And it has that meaning of steadfast or covenant love. And it is coupled with faithfulness, which highlights that this love is loyal. It is continual. It is steadfast. It is never changing. It is a love, a kindness that reaches down and treats the one loved undeservingly and is steadfast because of the faithfulness and never changing nature of God. He mentions hesed or loving kindness three times in this psalm. The second time he mentions it is in verse 7. And he says that the loving kindness was was precious to him. Look at verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. David is the author of this psalm. And he is describing the sinful inner workings in verses 1 through 4. But he quickly understands that those are the inner workings of his own life. Those are the inner workings that he saw yesterday, that he saw this morning. He knows those will be the inner workings of his mind tomorrow. And yet, in his own life, God displayed goodness. God provides mercy and grace despite his rejection despise his ignorance 
despised his forgetfulness of this aspect of God. David saw God's kindness manifest to him as as he saw how God had lovingly dealt with him. Instead of immediate judgment and damnation, patience and kindness and forgiveness was bestowed upon him. So it became personal. It became treasured. It became precious. He mentions loving kindness in verse 10. A third time, realizing that his constant need is of loving kindness because of his constant tendency to stray from God, his constant tendency to not fear God, to not take God seriously, his constant habit of exalting self. Lord, I need you to continue in your loving kindness, which God has promised to do anyway. But he is praying for God to fulfill his promise. So verse 5 speaks of his faithful love. In verse 6, we see the other two characteristics coming into play. And these are the two characteristics that are significantly missing in verses 1 and 2 when describing the heart of the wicked. And that is God's righteousness and his judgments. The wicked have no fear of God, but the righteous are overwhelmed by God's standards, his uprightness, his holiness, and the way he deals with sin. And David is so confident, he he, he so believes in these truths that he speaks of the future judgment of the wicked in the past tense in verse 11. Look at it in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 12. There, the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. His his meditation, his understanding, his grasping of God's righteousness and judgment are so such convictions in his heart that as he looks at the wicked, he already sees where they're headed. And he looks at it as if it has already happened. Righteous action comes from the recognition within our heart of the holiness and justice of God. That God has established right and wrong. That he perfectly demonstrates this righteousness. That it is his calling to mankind. And that because of this holiness, he will deal with sin. There is a righteous fear of God. Now notice David's descriptions of these attributes in verses 5 and 6. They extend to the heavens. They reach to the skies. They are like the mountains of God and they are like the great deep. His faithful love, his righteousness, his justice is immense. It is grander than anything else. God's demonstration of these amazing attributes cannot be matched. They cannot be measured They cannot be moved. So not only does God manifest these things in his dealing with all of his creation, but David is in awe that no one can even come close to this righteousness, this faithfulness, this justice, this loving kindness. The phrase at the end of verse 6 seems to be a, a specific example that is going on in the mind of David in the perfect demonstration of all four of these characteristics. 
These, these qualities, these characteristics are put on full display at the same time during God's judgment of the wickedness of sin at the flood and God's loving kindness and provision of the ark to save both man and beast. God is a righteous and just God and he will, he will deal with sin. He flooded the entire earth. He did not allow that sin to go on. Yet, his faithful, loving kindness provided this boat. And both man and beast were saved because of God's great loving kindness. Instead of God being ignored, the righteous meditate on and celebrate these qualities. Instead of ignorance of these doctrines, the godly recognize them as precious They see them as immense characteristics of God as valuable because of the personal relationship that one can share with this loving God. Now notice that just as the inner workings of the mind of the wicked led them to the sin in verses 3 and 4, the inner workings of the mind of the righteous lead them to a certain way of living as well. And we see that in 7 through 12. Verse 7 says that they take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Because of this understanding of his faithful love, because of this understanding of his judgments and his righteousness, they run to him for protection. As a young bird finds protection and warmth from its mother, unlike the wicked that ignore and flee from God, the righteous look to him and run to him. They find refuge spiritually as they turn to him for forgiveness of sin. They run to his loving kindness because they know they deserve the punishment that is to come. They find spiritual protection and forgiveness of sin, and they also run to him for protection from their enemies. We see that in verses 11 and 12 in the concluding section of this psalm, this demonstration of taking refuge in the Lord. He says, Do not let the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Can I suggest to you that one of the reasons you don't pray as often as you would like is you are not meditating on God's loving kindness for you? You're not meditating on his standards and his justice. If you were to do that, if I was to do that more, then our prayer life would be more consistent because we would be running to speak to this God. But not only did they take refuge in him as a result of what they understood, but verse 6 says that they drink their fill of the abundance of his house. Literally, they drink their fill of the fat of his house. They find all that they need in him. They get drunk is what he's trying to imply here. They get drunk as they continually go back to God. As a, as a drunk goes, gets more inebriated cup after cup after cup after cup. They get drunk as they go back to God for satisfaction. They get drunk as they go back to God for joy. They get drunk as they go back to God for spiritual life. And they go, get drunk as they go back to God for light and enlightenment. 
They don't go to the world or sin or things outside of his will, but they find these things in him and they drink deeply of his delights. The word delights there at uh, the end of verse 8 is the word Eden, the same word that is is, uh, used for the, the term Eden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. This place of perfection, this place of contentment, this place of satisfaction. This running to God for safety and satisfaction is a result of what they know about God, what His faithful love, His righteousness and justice. It is what they believe about God. If a movie was made inside out, and instead of Riley, it is you, what is going on in your heart? Is there a removal of God, an ignorance of God, an apathy of God, a disbelief in God, an exaltation of self? Or is there a meditating and delighting in the person and work of God in our life? As we close our service this morning, we come to the Lord's table. And as we do, I would encourage you to drink deeply from the truths of the gospel. Because the gospel is the very thing that keeps you from verses 1 and 2. And it keeps you on the thoughts of verses 5 and 6. Think about the gospel. Your need for salvation. Why do you need to be saved? Because God is just. God will bring judgment on sin. You, the wages of sin is death. And we deserve that because we broke God's law. But out of the gospel is the word, uh, is is the proclamation of God's loving kindness. That he loved us so much that he sent his son to live a life we could not live to take the penalty that we deserved. The gospel keeps the fear of God before our eyes. It speaks of the wages of sin. It speaks of God's holiness and the pouring out of his wrath. But it also highlights his faithful, loving kindness. May we keep our eye, the eyes of our hearts fully set on the gospel, not simply now, as we share together in the bread and the cup. But may our hearts be fully set on the gospel. For so, as we do that, we will reject the sin of verses 3 and 4, and we will pursue the righteousness of verses 7 through 12. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for clean hearts. We reject and ask for forgiveness for those thoughts of you not being who you've declared yourself to be. Putting you to the side, exalting ourselves. And Lord, we ask that we would think on, meditate on, run to, the truths of your goodness, that you love us, that that love is faithful, that the standards that you have given to us are sweet and good and kind, and Father, that you will bring about 
judgment on the sin that is committed against your holiness. For in so doing, Lord, then our lives will be set on a trajectory of righteousness versus that of sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.